0: Hello and welcome to the Church in Action podcast. Today we're beginning part one of our two-part series with Gordon MacDonald, author of Going Deep, Becoming a Person of Influence. Gordon has successfully led almost every kind of ministry and is one of the church's greatest thinkers. Join us as we begin discussing the criticality of intentional, transformational disciple making. Enjoy!
1: Hi, Happy New Year. I'm Charles Galda, and I lead Vision New England. Welcome to the Church in Action radio program and podcast, where we talk about making disciples, doing justice, and sharing Jesus to accelerate evangelism, because when the people of God do the work of God, it transforms lives, our communities, and the world. We're excited that today is our first podcast episode that's also being broadcast on the stations of Life Changing Radio around New England. Uh, so welcome, Life Changing Radio family. We're excited to be collaborating together. Uh, today, we've got a very special guest with us, the Reverend Dr. Gordon McDonald. Uh, Gordon was Chancellor of Denver Seminary, Senior Pastor at Grace Chapel in Lexington, Mass., the President of Varsity, the Editor-at-Large of at Leadership Journal. He's authored more than 12 books, including Ordering Your Private World, Secrets of a Generous Life, Renewing Your Spiritual Passion, Going Deep in a Resilient Life. Today, he speaks, consults, coaches, inspires pastors from around New England, and as I've experienced, asks really hard questions that make you think. And I appreciate that. He's also a member of the advisory board of Vision New England. Gordon, thanks for being with Thank
0: us. Thank you, Charles. It's good to be with you again.
1: Thanks. We I want to talk about disciple-making, but just kind of to set the stage a little bit. Um, we recently gathered 80 leaders uh, from all different parts of the church around New England to identify what God has been exposing in his church or wanting us to learn or change on through all of the events of the last two years everybody agrees god's doing something with this church the question was what and how we got disciples got a lot of traction uh leaders identified biblical illiteracy as an issue that we've known about a lot but it was exposed more significantly in the last two years um biblically literate people who just don't seem to have the mark of transformation in their life and biblically illiterate people who are transformed but are doing shocking things for a follower of Jesus. And so we're trying to piece together what's going on in disciple-making. Uh, Gordon, is, a, is a, I'll, he'll, he'll push back on me for saying this, but an authority in this area. Um, but Gordon, before we start on that, how do you define a disciple?
0: Well, historically, the word disciple reflects someone who's in a learning position. They've exposed themselves to someone who's more experienced, more mature, more knowledgeable, those kind of words. And they have come and are trying to absorb as much as they can from that person. So we use the word learner to describe a person like that. In modern English, we have other words that uh, color that, like the word training, coach, um, boss, Uh, words which are pejorative, words which are very honorable. But there's a whole family of words that describe how one generation stamps itself upon the succeeding generation. Now, if I can go on just for one more minute on that. For a thousand years, discipleship was done very naturally as part of just general life. We probably in earlier generations didn't even talk much about it because it was so natural to life. But in the last one hundred years, something dramatic has changed, and uh, as families have pulled apart, as children leave, as we are constantly on the move, now we have to start talking very deliberately about how this relationship of discipling happens, because um, the old way doesn't work anymore.
1: And and one thing I uh, I remember one pastor pointing out that it hadn't dawned on me is that the infrastructure even of the last. 50 years has disappeared. So uh, if I'm a pastor, I used to have an opportunity to talk to you every Sunday morning. And then there was a Bible study every Sunday morning. And then you came back on Sunday night and then you came back on Wednesday night. And then there was a media culture that at least supported some of the same things, right? If I watch TV shows, old TV shows and movies, they'll talk of God, they'll pray. um, So the themes will be different. That has all fallen away to I get to talk to you for maybe two Sundays a month for 20 yep. minutes while CNN, Fox News and MSNBC disciple you nonstop with a wholly different worldview and political bites. Do you think yeah, that's Yeah, I would
0: suggest that that began to uh, appear as a system around 1961, 62, somewhere in that era. Um, our culture had a lot of changes that were going on and the result was that people began to divide and separate. I'm probably a member of the last generation where the discipling drama took place all through life. My father and I were never close. Um, We we lived in the same home and he he did try hard to be a good father, but his interests were more in other areas. So I had mentors all the way through my life up until just the last three or four years. There was always a man, always a couple, a couple of times a woman who took an extra spiritual, special uh, interest in me and guided me through a phase of life uh, that I couldn't have done myself. So I, I can tell you about, I won't, but I can tell you about <clears throat> nine different disciplers who are, account for largely what I became over the years, all the way up to the recent, recent times. Now, if I can add one more thing, I think Back in the 1960s, the church began to switch its pastoral model from being a church where uh, a family-type church where you knew everybody. Very few churches grew more than 250, 300 people. We all got together for Sunday school opening exercises on Sunday morning, the old with the young. We sang the same songs. We put our money in the birthday cake. So all of that was very warm, and, and you you really knew who cared for you and who you cared for. But in the 60s, all that changed, largely due to transportation, communication, and new concepts of the way we ought to make things happen. And churches became programmatic churches rather than pastoral churches.
1: What, what's the difference?
0: Well, a pastoral church, uh, I, I, my father was a pastor, and, he really had two or three jobs in his job description, if, if he even had a job description. He preached on Sunday morning, he preached a second sermon on Sunday night. He preached a devotional type of sermon on Wednesday evening at prayer meeting, and everybody came. And then he would spend the after rest of the year the rest of the day what he called calling. He would say to my mother at breakfast, Esther, I'll be gone all day long till tonight. I'll be calling. And that meant he was knocking on the doors of homes. He was going to hospitals. He was occasionally going to where people worked. He was just pressing the flesh and finding out what the state of their soul was. That's all my father did for a living. Then I came along, my my uh, generation, and <clears throat> suddenly, and we can thank the Southern Baptists for this, I think, Uh but the church became programmatic. We began to say, this group of people needs this, this group needs that. And so we began to have athletics and music and all kinds of activities. The next thing you know, you had church staffs. Uh, And I grew up in that generation where we watched that all happen. I was one of the first youth pastors that came along in modern time. That's what you call a programmatic church. And the real subtle change that happened was that we be we were turned into managers? I was hired to be a pastor, but I spent most of my life as a manager. And I, you know, ultimately I was supervising a staff of over forty people. Now you have to read Peter Drucker and all the other management gurus to learn how to organize men and women to do their jobs. Uh, you have to decode how an organization works. We never learned that stuff in seminary. So people like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren and a few others came along and they naturally kind of followed those um, patterns and they taught the rest of us how to do it.
1: And and so what I hear in that is there, but but there's a disconnect then from the person who's, um, ta- if I can say tasked by God, my pastor, my shepherd, right, to know and facilitate my spiritual growth.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, That's a complicated comment you just made, and I'm trying to figure out where to start with it. Uh, all, all I can tell you is that men and well, it was mostly men. Men like me in my graduating class. We just wanted to impact people. We wanted to care for the dying and the sick. We wanted to encourage the young people. Uh, but the but churches began to say to us, "No, you you must manage staff, and you must prompt these programs and." Um, so we were hired for one thing, but we ended up doing the other.
1: And and so um, the as, as as that as those layers grow, now there's somebody who maybe I know my youth pastor, and he's focused on my spiritual development. It's a question of now how what skills they have mm-hmm. in that area and how well they're managed, trained, equipped, led, to know whether or not I'm seeing that. But as that as that church line grows. I get even more distant, and have we figured out the things then that replace that? I think in a lot of churches, small groups were intended to get at that. Is that an effective answer to having someone in your life who plays that pastoral? I don't role? think it's an
0: effective change at all. I, uh, you know, it's interesting, Charles, that we're having this conversation because just two weeks ago, I went down to Long Island, uh, in the borough of Queens, where I grew up as a child, and I was able to tour the church my father pastored, and that I went as a child. Um, I hadn't been there for 60 years. And I walked around that church. Uh, They let me come in and tour the building. I walked around that church, and my mind bursted with memories of things that happened when I was three years of age, six years of age, seven and eight. I can remember teachers. We all had Sunday school classes. I was a member of about... Uh, eight boys, nine boys, and our teacher was Miss Cummings. She was there every Sunday of the summer, of the year. She never missed. And that's one of the big differences. Teachers in those days were really dependable. They hung out with you. Now, uh, the people who uh, recruit teachers will tell you, I can't get a teacher to pledge attendance more than one and a half times a month. So, you know, the whole notion of how you impact people has dramatically changed in the last 40 to 50 years.
1: And sometimes in that small group experience, you might experience that pastoral person, but I might be the small group leader because I'm willing to open my house and I have may may have no pastoral gift. But but we also may not have the right equipping and training, even if I do have that about how to use it. And I may not see my role the way you described it. I, I, I like the way you talked about your father's role of, my job is to get to know you and to know your spiritual, where you are spiritually and help move you along. Yep. And I don't know that every small group leader recognizes that's what they're stepping into. And so, and we've seen some studies that show that model, you know, there's, that model is typically not a great model for building disciples.
0: Well, and so it's always we, we probably, the minute a group passes, let's, I'm gonna pick a couple of numbers, 14 or 16. Once a group goes beyond that size, it begins to lose its ability to really become intimate at a level that we can really teach and care for each other. Uh, so when you start having groups of 40, 90, 80, those are nice groups and you meet a lot of wonderful people. But little, little bit by little, it turns into a lecture hall. And the next thing you know, you're just dispensing information. Where in the old way, we dispensed or we did ministry by imitation. Two very important words.
1: Now I want to be careful, folks. Don't hear our conversation as "boy, wasn't it great in the good old days?" And so, because there were, I'm sure there were things wrong there. But I want to give you the chance to just speak to that. Is, is it that hey, things used to be so much better, um, or is it that we, or is it something else?
0: You have to say there were some things that were much better. Um, you can't contest the fact that in in the old days, as you put it. People did really get to know each other. Uh, We had time to hang out with each other. We didn't have television. We didn't have the National Football League and all this stuff that, you know, pulled people in different directions. So when I was a kid in in church, I knew a lot of people. And they knew me, by the way, and were quick to tell my mother or father if I was misbehaving. But there was intimacy in those days. Now, you can trade it off and say there are some wonderful things that go on today, and I wouldn't contest that at all. Um, I I love some of the things these younger generational men and women have pulled off. Um, some of it drives me a little bit crazy because I'm an old man, but I, I would be the last one to say to the younger generation, stop, what you're doing is not good because they're going to ferret this thing out and they're going to come up with ways of doing things in the coming years that are going to be a real pleasure to God.
1: It's uh, the, what I hear, part of what I hear you saying is that there's a level of, I'm going to call it accountability in disciple making and community in disciple making that are necessary to it. Um, but, if, but that if I don't, I have to know you for, uh, for you to make me a disciple or me to be discipling you. Um, And I need to have enough of a relationship that when you say to me one day, uh, Charles, that doesn't reflect the love of Jesus. That doesn't break the relationship. And we can continue to walk Mm -hmm. together. Am I making the right observation? Yeah,
0: that sounds good to me. Uh, All I know is that in my teenage years, in my childhood years, there was probably 30 or 40 people watching me all the time. And they'd be quick to confront me if some behavior or attitude in my life as well as the other kids in the church, um, we were, we were reported on pretty quickly. That would not happen most times today.
1: Yeah. I'm sure if there's kids listening to us, they're like, going, oh, that doesn't sound better than today. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and so is, is it then if we're not making disciples today, is that the pastor's fault? Or if we're, we shouldn't say, cause we are making disciples today, but if it's not, Holistically working or working as well. Well, is that it's the, past the pastor's fault
0: if you want to say who's the number one person accountable for running the church from day to day. Yeah, the pastor has to accept some accountability. Does he or she lead an organization in which people's lives are changed? Peter Drucker once said, "Of all nonprofit institutions, the the mission of a nonprofit is human change, and that goes for hospitals." It goes for all kinds of nonprofit organizations. And if you think about it, you could generalize and say that's the church's mission, too, to change people, to bring them more and more in alignment with Jesus Christ, to be a servant. Uh, So human change is a very interesting line. And uh, that's where the pastor starts becoming responsible. Is he or she running an organization where people are growing, changing? uh discarding behaviors which are not a pleasure to god um that's what the number one guy is supposed to be doing
1: it's interesting because you you come from a pastoral background obviously and so so you're saying hey it's the pastor i come from a, i'm a lay person i go there i think the lay people have it wrong here too the uh because <laughs> most pastors are accountable to some lay organ lay board lay committee And I don't know, and I've served on those, and I don't know that I've said, where's your plan for making disciples? Or how do we measure making disciples? we talked about it, but I don't think it's, we've held pastors accountable that way. So it feels like to me, that's- Yeah, let me
0: leap on that for just a second. What's hit me in the last few years, since I have left the organized organized pastor, is that I can't remember once in all my years as a pastor, ever an elders board or an elder, ever approaching me and saying, how many people do you expect this year to disciple? Who will be different 12 months from now because you put your hands into their lives? No one ever asked me. They asked me, did we need the budget? Our attendance figures up? What are we going to do about this building that needs to, you know, some refurbishing? Those were the questions I got. But I don't ever remember being asked the question: How many men and women are different in likeness because your your life touched them?
1: And, yeah, and I, I've heard I've heard other pastors say the same. I get measured on bucks, butts, and mm-hmm. baptisms, right? How, how much we raise, how many people come, how many people we baptize, and also it's that so that their motivation for making disciples does not come from their governance of their church; it has to come from. Well, Charles, else. let me
0: take you one step further back. Uh, you mentioned that I was uh, connected with the seminary as chancellor. Uh, I used to sit with our faculty quite frequently in ones and twos or maybe larger groups. And we would talk about the future of the church and uh, where things were going. And I, I would say to these faculty members, if I was a young person coming to this school this year, and I felt the call of God to be a discipler, what courses would I take? What courses would teach me to be a a janitor, if you please, of people's lives? And over and over again, the faculty would, would shake their heads. No, we don't have courses quite like that. And that that always bothered me because I think in the next 20, 30 years, the pinpoint of the church is going to be more toward discipleship. That doesn't come from the pulpit.
1: And and so and I've had a lot of pastors say to me too, um, who are not just early career guy, uh, guys, but men and women who are more advanced, saying nobody ever discipled me, right? So I don't get in a seminary, and I didn't experience it. So we don't we don't have a core capability. But I, I think when Jesus said go make disciples, I don't think he was just talking to pastors. And so I think that's probably where you're going is that we're all called to make disciples. So if anybody's listening, saying why isn't my pastor doing a better job at this? We have to look at ourselves too, don't we? Yeah,
0: I, I, I do think the word disciples is very rubbery. It can mean a 10 different things. Uh, Jesus made disciples. He, he limited himself in effect to 12 people. There may have been some others off the edge of that, but he did what every rabbi did in those days. He surrounded himself with a small collective of learners and they had some kind of official nature. Uh, We can talk about that in a few minutes, but uh, then then there's a larger group in a church that could be called disciples simply because they have had a conversion experience and they are trying to follow Jesus, but they're really not living in submission to anybody. So this word disciple, you have to carefully define what the outcome is of the discipleship to know what you're talking about.
1: And so what, what I, let me does, just finish
0: by saying I'm being repetitive here. Perhaps I don't. Uh, I I'm disappointed for the person who says to me I never had a discipler, because I had one for virtually every year of my life. There was always somebody just a phone call away that I could call if there was trouble, if there was confusion, if I needed some wisdom. I've always had someone like that in my life.
1: And secularly, we call it a mentor. Yes, I,
0: and I prefer that word.
1: Why? why? Well,
0: I, I, the word disciple has been, I, I use the word rubbery a minute. What I really had in the back of my mind, discipling today is like a rubber band that's worn out. And uh, we, we sometimes need to change the vocabulary just a little bit to bring freshness to the concept. And in our larger world, mentoring, of course, it comes out of the Greek civilization where mentor was the, uh, he, he was the coach for the son of the king of Pyram, if I remember right. Nevertheless, the word mentor is a very relevant word today. And it, it fits what's going on in the church. It just has to be redefined in terms of what you want to achieve by it. But the word cycling is, is a, so loosely used today that you want to say, wait a minute, wh- give me a definition before you start talking.
1: And and so the one I go with, and so I'd like you to correct me or at least fill in the blanks, is someone who knows what they believe, so they're saved, they know what they believe and why, and they're have been they being transformed day by day to be more like Jesus and are manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. I'd
0: be comfortable with that. Um, it's, okay. a, it's a good overage statement that describes the beginning and the end. Uh, I'm not sure that we talk enough about what discipleship is supposed to produce. For example, I got a piece of paper here where I wrote down three words. In the discipleship experience, one grows character, and the measurement of the character is Jesus. So there's this notion of becoming more and more Christ-like, engaging in the process of transformation so that I represent Jesus along with others into a larger world. The second word I wrote down is the word skills, because we disciple people to, and we tease out of them certain gifts or abilities which God has planted in them. One would be the word teacher. Another would be the word organizer. Uh, a third would be a healer. And in the discipleship process, uh, not only do we build character, but we build skill. And you see Jesus in the um, I suspect that he spent about two years in a large amount of time with, with the 12. But you see him um, using his discernment as to who will be able to do what. And he's got his eye on Simon Peter as a leader. And he's giving him opportunities to fail, to gather strength, uh, to see the bigger picture. So we get we disciple first for skills. And then we disciple for leadership. There are people, we see them coming along, and we know that this woman or this man has an uncanny ability to organize people and to uh, put them into certain positions where together they work as a team. Uh, We see all kinds of illustrations of that in sports, in the military, in well-run businesses. I'm not sure we see it as well as I wish we could in the church. Thanks for tuning in to part one of our two-part series on the criticality of intentional transformational disciple-making with Gordon MacDonald. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Luis Palau Association, who are dedicated to proclaiming the good news, uniting the church, and impacting cities worldwide. If you liked this, please like, share, and subscribe. You can learn more about Vision New England at visionnewengland.org. Join us next week for part two of this conversation with Gordon McDonald as he shares the disciple-making model he used in his ministry. See you next time.